this is a very different Advent season. Uh, it's not just the holy night, silent night, baby in a manger. We're ripping back the curtain a little bit to see throughout history what was actually happening on that night. That a battle was being waged against the sun. That from the very beginning, the serpent sought to devour and destroy the Son of God, but also the people of God. That's why we've been spending this time in Revelation chapter 12 that Jeremiah read earlier, and Lindsay, that that night, while yes, it was peaceful, there was a much grander thing going on in that moment. And so as we walk into that this morning, I just want to ask us that you pray with me, and we'll open up God's Word together. We're going to spend most of our morning actually in Genesis chapter 3 together, so let's pray. God, it's been so good to be here this morning, to hear the people of God sing their promises of God, to hear them say that your word is our authority. And I pray that is true. It's not just us paying lip service back to you. I pray that we genuinely believe in your word and that it's our soul's delight this morning. Now, as we open up your word, I pray that it transforms our lives and informs everything about us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, as Tony's talked about last week, we're talking about the three gifts that came at Christmas on that O Holy Night, and today is gift one, and it's from deception to deliverance, and there's a major typo in there, uh, Brenda, so if you could help me out. I don't know what deception means, so deception. It's deception to deliverance. That just throws you off a little bit, doesn't it? That's what we're going to be talking about today. Before we do that, just a quick story. Uh, it's an epic story. From 2004, a bunch of people were on a, on a safari in a game reserve in Kruger National Park. Kruger National Park is one of the, the largest game reserves in all of South Africa. Absolutely stunning place where animals just roam free and predators seek their prey. It's what happens. So these people are driving through the, the game reserve in this open top canvas jeep. And they look across the watering hole where they're parked, and they see this herd of buffalo, Cape buffalo, coming down to the water to drink. This massive herd of these massive beasts with all this power and strength. They're one of the most deadly animals in all of Africa. And they're coming down to this water, probably 50 of them in whole, and they're going to come down to drink. But over to the right in the, in the high grass is a bunch of lions, five of them to be exact. This pride of lions just seeking and observing this herd of buffalo coming down, and they just sit there waiting and lounging for an opportunity. The buffalo are completely unaware that they're coming towards a pride of lions, and as they get closer and closer, you see the lions start to move around a little bit. No longer are they lounging and sunbathing, now they're going to get into an attack position as they creep along the high grass, just looking through the high grass at these buffalo. And then all of a sudden, as they get closer and closer, one of them notices the lions. But by that point, it was way too late. As soon as the buffalo sees the lions, the lions pounce, and all the buffalo flee. But the lions are a very tactful, tactful group. They know exactly what they're going to do, and they're going to seek to devour not the mightiest, not the strongest, not the bravest. They're going to go after the, the smallest, the weakest, the one that's defenseless. And so they do. They corner a young calf. And they jump on it, seek their teeth and claws into its skin, and they pull it down towards the shore. And as they sit there, the buffalo are all running the opposite direction, away from this young calf who's struggling to survive, strong, struggling to get free. And as they're 
fighting over this calf, I kid you not, two crocodiles come out of the water and snap hold of the calf. And for the next few moments, there's an intense game of tug of war going on between the lions and the crocodiles. At the middle is this young calf. The people, obviously, who are recording this on their phones and on their, on their cameras are absolutely horrified. I mean, what do you do? This is nature. They're not going to like, well, let's go save that calf. No, there's a bunch of lions and a bunch of buffalo. You just stay put. You can even hear the tour guide, the safari guy's like, I have never seen anything like this. And they're like, what do we do? And this tug of war finally breaks as they're able to get the calf away from the crocodiles who swim away. And they just keep sitting, sitting there waiting for the buffalo to flee and they can finally consume and devour their, their new meal. But the people are absolutely shocked and amazed because in a moment, this entire herd of buffalo come back to the scene. They come back with a different sense of boldness and a different sense of courage, and they actually surround all these lions. They pin them between the water and themselves, and they start itching closer and closer and closer, and finally, one by one, these buffalo attack the lions to free the calf. One is so, it's so epic because the buffalo reaches down and picks up the lion with his horns, throwing it up in the air, almost back to the water of crocodiles. And sure enough, one by one, all the lions are gone and they get the calf who's still alive and still able to move. And in an amazing scene, they surround the calf and they push against the lions who are now fleeing from the scene. It's an amazing thing caught on film. National Geographic says it's one of the great, greatest things ever caught on film in nature. You can actually get on YouTube. I encourage you, look up Battle of Kruger Park. Don't do it right now because it's eight minutes long and I will notice that you're doing it. Because <laughs> you'll, you'll start fist pumping whenever you see the lion get thrown in the air. Later today, I'll post it on my Facebook, not the church page, that's a little irreverent. I'll post it on my page. Watch it. It's amazing. And, the, and you're like, why do I tell you that? In the same way, what we're talking about in this series is that we are pulling back the curtain to an enemy who is waiting and seeking in the high grass, seeking to devour and consume us. He's seeking to devour the naive, the weak, the fearful. And he's using the tactic of deception. First Peter, the apostle, wrote this, Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour someone. That is the enemy of God that we face. That's the enemy of God that we talked about last week who was present when Jesus was born. This is the angel, the serpent, the dragon coming down to devour not only the child of God, but the people of God. And this has been going on since the very beginning as he comes in to not deliver a striking blow, not trying to kill you in a moment, but deceive you with sweet melodies of pleasure, sweet melodies of fame, glory, satisfaction. And all of a sudden, everything becomes cloudy, everything becomes chaotic, and all we are left with is confusion. Because we have no idea that we've been deceived. In the same manner as that lion approaches that buffalo, that buffalo had no idea what was lurking in the shadows. The moment he realized danger is here, it was too late. In the same manner, we talk about deception. Once we know that we've been deceived, it has been too late. So as we talk about deception, what I'm talking about is a successful tactic that has been used by a broken 
and defeated enemy. We talked about this last week that Satan has already been defeated. He is a coward. He is fleeing right now. He's on a sinking ship, but what he's doing right now is seeking to devour you and bring you down with him into the depths of hell. And he's been doing it from the very beginning. So this morning, what I want to show you is the story of Genesis chapter 3 and how he's been using these tactics from the very beginning. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to spend time here together. I'm going to start in verse 25, actually, of chapter 2. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals in the Lord that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave it some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So I believe in this text, in these 12, 13 verses, there is a lot of truth about how the enemy works. There are five tactics, I believe, that, they, that he uses against us. Well, I want you to notice something carefully, though. In verse 25 of chapter 2, it says, Adam and his wife, Eve, were both naked and they felt no shame. They were naked and they felt no shame. There was perfect unity, no division between them and God, but also one another. There was nothing to hide in their marital relationships. There was nothing to hide in their pursuit of God. They were perfect. This place that they were was in paradise. Everything was perfect. They were pure. They were innocent. They were naive. But so quickly, paradise falls. It falls and it spirals into utter chaos. A people who knew no shame will quickly understand what shame is. The serpent enters a picture. This beast that crawled along the ground, the very animal who just two chapters before God says, you will have dominion over, now comes before them and starts speaking to them. And the first tactic that Satan, this serpent, uses, we can find in verse 1. Satan says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The first tactic that Satan always uses to deceive his people is to lead you to doubt the word of God. Every time. He wants you to doubt the word of God. What does he say? Did God really say that? Did God really say that you cannot eat of this tree? That's a powerful question. Once that question is asked, immediately doubt takes place in the heart and mind of Eve. But she knows the word of God because here's what happened back in chapter 2. What did God actually say? Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly 
die. What did God actually say? I want to notice, notice something here, though. Historically speaking, the church has put all the blame on one individual here, Eve. Notice in chapter 2 who has not been formed yet. Eve. The word of God was given to Adam. Do not eat from this tree or you will surely die. Next couple sentences. And God says it's not good for man to be alone, so he forms Eve. It's amazing how quickly we can deceive ourselves and blame on the wrong person. Adam also to blame, and we'll talk more about that in a second. Where was he in this midst? Did God actually say that? And then once he has that doubt in her mind, what does he say next? You won't die. That's not really what's going to happen. You're, no, no, no. That, that's, a, that's overblown. That's, that's a, not, no, no, it's not that big of a deal. Just eat the fruit. See, once we believe just a little bit of the lie that God's word is not true, we will then begin to deny the ramifications of our decisions and our sins. Okay, maybe it's not that bad. Maybe God didn't really mean what he actually said. So Satan says, take it, you won't die. And listen, she knew, and Adam knew, God's command. She quoted it back to him. She knew it right there. But she was not secure and confident in it. Because a doubt was taking root in her mind and the deception was creating havoc. So the first one is to doubt the word of God. The second one is to doubt your identity. To doubt your identity, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. This is Satan speaking. Knowing good and evil. God knows you will be like God and God does not want that. False. Genesis 1.27. And God made mankind in his image and likeness. They were already like God. Maybe not the one to be worshipped and deified, but they were already made like him in his goodness, in his attributes, in his character. He's telling them, no, no, no. There's a special status that you haven't made yet. You're, you're, God does not want you to be like him. They already are. They already are made just like him. He wants to deny the reality that they are made in his image. And once that happens, the next deception, deception takes place. Because once you doubt your identity, the next thing you're going to do is doubt your purpose, which is the third tactic. He's going to lead you to doubt your very purpose. He would love to get you to doubt your identity and to doubt your purpose. He's got you exactly where he wants you when that happens. What was their purpose? you got to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea, and the birds and the skies of the, over every living creature that moves along the ground. They're already failing at one of these. They're letting a serpent who they should have dominion over speak back to them. But also they're now doubting the very purpose that God has. What was God's purpose for them? To fill the earth with what? Not a bunch of kids to fill the earth with his very image, to spread his image and his goodness and his characteristics all over this entire world. And he's now they're beginning to doubt that purpose. In this moment, they're no longer bearing the image of God. No longer are they bearing anything of God. They're not showing dominion. 
But being like God was already in their very DNA and in their purpose. And now all we're left with is a very confused people. A very confused people who don't know what they're doing anymore. So we see doubting the word of God, doubting their identity, doubting their purpose. The fourth one's in verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate. When she saw that this thing that was forbidden was good and pleasing to the eye, when it looked satisfying, when it looked like something she would want to consume and devour, what does she do? She doubts the very character of God. She doubts the very character of God. God's withholding goodness from me. Why did God put this one fruit, this one tree that I cannot touch? Why did he make it look so good if I can't have it? I want it. So God, I want, I want you to give it to me, God. Give it back to me. It's for me. I deserve it. All you're doing in that moment, all she's doing is insulting the very character of God. Who's defined everything for them, given them everything. He's literally, chapters 1, 2, and 3, walking with them. And in this moment, she's like, ah, I want that. You're pretty good. I want that. And in their heart and mind, she's choosing something temporary. And this ultimately led to something they were never designed to see, which we see in verse 7. Then their eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So just a moment ago, we see they were naked, unashamed. Nothing to hide between themselves, nothing to hide between them and God, and now here they are, cowering in fear, guilty of shame. The sense of shame, this guilt and fear now stirring within their very soul and manifesting itself as they fell to the final tactic which we see in verse 7 and 8, which says that they lead you to believe that you can cover your shame. As soon as they messed up, they saw themselves for what they truly were. They saw their spouse. They saw the shame on them. They saw the shame on themselves. And they quickly took fig leaves to hide it, to cover up their shame. And they hid. As God enters the garden, he walks in the garden looking for them. He says, where are you? He says, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God says, who told you you were naked? Who told you that you were naked? And we see this humorous, which every single one of us would do the same thing because we do it all the time. What happens? Adam blames God for giving him the woman. He blames the woman. Eve blames the serpent. And it's go round and round and round not realizing that the very responsibility that should happen falls on themselves for falling into the deception. It was all about them and their inability to see what was going on here. And you know what happens next, that God casts them out of the garden, casts them out of paradise. He puts a curse upon them and says, Eve, because of what you've done, you're going to experience pain in childbirth. Adam, because of what you've done, you're going to Work the grounds, and you're going to go through a lot of hard work, toil, and sweat. You're going to have pain. But he also puts a curse upon the serpent. Tony talked about this last week. Is that right after this group of people, both of them collectively fell, not just one, collectively, 
they were deceived and brought sin into the world after they doubted the word of God, their identity, their purpose, their character, and they believed that they could cover their shame. What does God do? He sets forth in motion the gospel. The word is proto-evangelion, the first gospel. He says in verse 14 to the serpent, he says, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That is the first gospel. He says, Eve, Adam, you're going to have an heir. You're going to have a child. And Satan's always going to be going after your child. We see this is true in Genesis 4, when their children murder each other. But it goes even further. He says, there's going to come an heir between you and this. And you're going to have a son one day. And out of your lineage will come one who will be stricken by the serpent. He will strike his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. That's the gospel. That's what that is. He's saying to the serpent, you're going to make war. You're going to wage war against the offspring of this lady. He did. But he's also showing here some mercy. Because God does not immediately destroy Adam and Eve. He's like, well, you know, that didn't work. Let's start over. No. In his mercy, he allowed them to live. And allow them to leave, the, leave into the wilderness, to, to leave paradise. But the first thing we see him do is in the end of chapter 3. When he puts, verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and clothed them. Do you see the beauty of the gospel there? Hey, there's going to come an offspring. There's going to be war against your offspring. But one day, he might strike his heel, but he's going to crush his head. And right now, I know you know shame. You know guilt. You are naked and you are afraid right now. But here's my mercy as I clothe you and give you what you need. We'll come back to this in a second. He clothed them. It's an amazing story of victory in the very midst of defeat. This story, we read this so often, it's a story of defeat. Adam and Eve messed up. What was us? There's actually a lot of victory right here because we're seeing the big picture of Scripture as we see the Christmas story even being played into this. This is all interwoven together from the very beginning, from Genesis to Revelation. It's all about Jesus and the grand scheme of what he's doing. The curse and defeat that Adam and Eve brought was not just upon them. It was upon all their descendants, upon you and me, and upon all of creation. And it wasn't long for the ramifications of their decisions to take place. As I mentioned, the very next chapter, there's murder. Go a few more chapters. The mankind is not fulfilling their purpose, which is to bear God's image. They decide to make an image for themselves, so they build a great tower to be glorified and be like the gods. What does God do? He confuses them and scatters them. It gets even worse. They become so corrupt, so rebellious, so terrible. What does God decide to do? He decides, hey, Noah, I'm choosing you. The rest of you are being purified and dead. Starting over, through this one new family, here we go. Does it get better? No. 
just a few decades later, what happens? The people of God become so numerous, and they have to go to Egypt during the, during the drought, and they come to Egypt, and they get so big, so mighty, that Pharaoh's like, whoa, 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 let's enslave you all. 400 years in slavery with no identity, no purpose, not even a religion anymore. No thought of a way out. God delivers them in a mighty way. Things will get better? No, it doesn't get better. They're in the wilderness for a couple months, and they're like, well, let's worship that golden calf that just popped out of the fire. God's like, no, here's the covenant. Does it get better? No. They're still like, hey, we really would like to have a king like the other nations. God, you're pretty good. I want a king. So they have a king. He's terrible. Then they get a good one. He's all right, but he's got a lot of sinful problems. And good king, bad king, good king, bad. And it's ironic that the very thing they wanted was the very thing that enslaved them after that. We want a king. All right, here God raised up Nebuchadnezzar to come in and lead you on to exile and captivity for 70 years because you guys are rebellious, sinful, terrible people. The Old Testament is just full of dark, spiraling chaos, all starting in Genesis 3 with one decision to say, you know what, God, I know better. I'll take this. And it spirals into chaos, and then we, and we see the scene that is set when Jesus is born. I encourage you to spend time doing a quick overview of what really happens in the Old Testament. It is dark. There's a lot of light. It is dark. Read Judges for five seconds and you'll walk away depressed. Spend time reading what happens in the 400 years between Malachi and when Jesus is born, the intertestamental period. It's dark. God was silent. God was no longer speaking through prophets. They think, whoa, it's out of control. We don't hear from God. We don't know God anymore. And that's when God decides to send Jesus. All that was happening was because a broken and defeated enemy was seeking to devour the people of God. Looking to distract. Hey, God's a good God, but you would really love a king. Just speaking tender words into their ears as he deceives them for generations. Hey, I know God said set up a monument so you'll never forget. Yeah, you're going to forget. So when Jesus is born, on that silent and holy night that we talked about last week, it may have been peaceful there and perfect in the stable in Bethlehem, and the angels may have been filling the sky, but there was a war starting between the depths of hell and in heaven. That's what's going on here. A war is being started, and Satan is there lying in the, in the wilderness, lying there in the high grass, looking to devour this child who's being born. Why do you think Herod had it in his mind to kill all the children of Bethlehem? Satan speaking tender words into his ears about glory and fame, about a name that he could make for himself. But as we said last week, it wasn't just about Jesus, it was also about the children of God. But we see in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is early on in his ministry, and right before his ministry really got started, Jesus is fasting for 40 days, and he's led to the wilderness. Imagine 40 days of fasting. Jesus had his weakest point. Remember, Jesus was human. In a moment of weakness, no food, no water. So Satan comes in to speak tenderly into his ears. And in the same way, he uses similar tactics that he used back in Genesis 3. What do we see? First, he tried to create doubt in Jesus' identity over and over again. 
over and over again. He says, hey, if you truly are the Son of God, if you really are God in flesh, if you really are the Messiah, do this, say this. He tried to put a seed of doubt in Jesus' mind who he truly was. What else did he do? He tried to create doubt in the Word of God. How? He used God's Word against him. Hey, isn't it written somewhere? It's amazing how even the enemy of God knows the Word of God. He tried to create doubt in his purpose. How did he do that? He says to him, all this, all this kingdom, all this territory, I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. Don't follow the will of the Father. That's your purpose. That's okay. No, follow me. Bow to me. Worship me. I will give you all that you want. How enticing is that? But Jesus, unlike Adam, unlike Eve, stood there very strong in the temptation. They didn't fall. Why? He says to him, away with me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. Jesus stood firm in who, who he was, in the word of God, in the character of God, in the purposes of God. Later, in the life of Jesus, the same enemy would use the very people that Jesus came to save to bring destruction on his life. Jesus is standing there talking to a bunch of Jews and a bunch of Pharisees, and they're all claiming to be the rightful heirs, the rightful children of God, because they were descendants of Abraham. Jesus looks upon them and says, If God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Basically saying, you should get this. Because you are unable to hear what I say, because you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? I am telling the truth. Why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. So here's this group of people saying, hey, we belong to Abraham. We belong to God. Where are his descendants? He's like, nah, wrong-o. You belong to Satan. Why? Because you don't know who I am. I am God in flesh. I am right here in front of you, and you don't see me. You don't hear me. You don't recognize me. You don't understand truth anymore because all you have believed are the lies of the father of lies. And you're so deceived. How have you been so deceived? You are following the one who's tempting you and deceiving you from the very beginning. He goes on to say this amazing thing later at the end of that about Abraham. He's like, before Abraham, I am. Mic drop. It's like, before Abraham, yeah, Abraham's a big deal. He's a father of our faith. But before Abraham, that was me. Jesus is saying before them, I am the Alpha and Omega. I am God. I created all those things. I created Abraham for you. I created you. I am. It's an amazing, powerful statement. What happens? In their deception, they pick up rocks and try to stone Jesus. Isn't it amazing how for decades once you're caught in a lie, the first thing you do is get defensive and start throwing rocks. They start throwing rocks at Jesus, but he's able to slip away. But ultimately we know the same group of individuals, Satan keeps speaking tenderly to them. So much so that just a few years later, as he's at Passover in Jerusalem, this giant crowd is there, and they're witnessing a trial between Jesus and Barabbas and Pontius Pilate in the middle. And these Pharisees, these Jewish leaders are going around the room 
around this, the courtyard saying, hey, we're going to crucify this guy. The very deception that's going into their minds is now coming out of their lips as they speak to one another. Ultimately, they start screaming, crucify him, crucify him. So they have him beaten, he's mocked, he's scorned, and he's hung on a cursed tree to die. An innocent man for no good reason. But there he is on the cross. The weight of sin and shame upon his shoulders. The weight of God's wrath and judgment pouring down upon him as a father turns his face away from his own son. Breathing his very last breath. Dead. And Satan's over here doing a victory dance. He's like, I did it. I did it. I know we're Christmas, but Easter's later, but Christmas and Easter go hand in hand. You better celebrate the resurrection every day. Because three days later, Jesus rose from the grave. What did he rise with? Authority and power with the keys of hell and sin and death. All right there. He's got it all. And Satan's like, oh, crap. Excuse me if that offends you. And Satan flees. Why? Because he's a coward and he's already been defeated once, and now he's been ultimately defeated. Now he's bound. Right now, he's bound. He has not had the authority over the people of God. He's been bound by Jesus himself. No longer does he have the, the power of death. No longer does he have the power of sin. He's been bound. When Jesus is now ruling and reigning, Satan's fleeing. And it's a sinking ship that he's on. But in his pursuit right now, Running and hiding, he's pulling you and I down with him. Seeking to devour all of us. He, couldn't, he could not kill the Son of God, but he has the power and desire to see us destroyed. We know what happens. We know that the gift that came at Christmas was the gift of deliverance when Jesus says, hey, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the light that no one comes to follow except through me. We know that story. And that reality, the sad thing is we still live in the reality of the now and the not yet. What I mean by that is we know, for those of us who follow Jesus, we know that eternity is kept and secured. We know that promise is kept. We know that hope is kept. We know all these things are there. But we're still here. We're like, what do we do? How do we live? How do we do all these things? What do we do? How do we go about this life? How do we live with the joy before us, but we feel deception all around us? How do we navigate all these different things? The only way to do it, to quote Tony Foreman, is to kick Satan in the teeth. To constantly be on the offensive, not the defense. We need to be constantly going and attacking the very enemy of darkness, the very enemy of lies, the father of lies. Not cowering in fear. He's the only one who should be cowering in fear. His time is limited. We have eternity before us. So what do we do then? Here's the five tactics that we saw. Here's the five counter tactics we should use back against Satan. The first one, when he says we should, he's going to lead you to doubt in the word of God, here's the deal. You should know the word of God better than the enemy of God. It's amazing, I'm including myself in this, so don't feel like I'm judging you. It's amazing how biblically illiterate the Christians are today. It's unreal 
when we have the power of God's word in our palms, in our pockets, but yet we don't have it written upon our heart. Because all it takes is Satan to go, wait a second, did God really say that? And you're like, uh, I don't know. I think so. I saw it on TikTok, so maybe I think so. You laugh. I'll come back to that. But how? How do we do this? How do we know the word of God better than the enemy? Go, one, is to rest in the promises that were in eternity way before Satan ever started lying. How? It's amazing. Jesus' promises were from the very beginning of time. Satan came later. But yeah, those are lies that we believe. Believe. When we learn God's word, we spend time in it. We have it as our soul's delight. We have it written upon our hearts. So when God comes to us and says, did God actually say that? We're like, yep, he said that. Flee. Flee from me. And there are so many people today, I shared this with you last week, a big, big pet peeve of mine in this world. It's an annoyance. Do not claim to have authority on a matter if you are actually ignorant on that matter. Does that make sense? There are people, moms, dads, grandparents, who your kids are watching on YouTube and TikTok, who because they went to school, or because they have a platform, or because they have an audience and a following, well, they're an expert, and they said God said this, without ever looking into God's word, but because they have a following. A following means nothing. A platform means nothing. I'm getting a degree, but a degree means nothing. Being, on a, being a pastor actually means nothing. Rest in God's word, not man's opinion. We have to rest in what he has said to us, what he is speaking to us. And the only way you will know what God says is if you spend time reading what he said. This is God's very breath on a page to us. Read it. Delight in it. Love it. So when someone says to you, did God say that? Yep, right there. You don't even have to worry about it. The second one, that he's going to lead us to doubt our identity. Here's how we counter that. Know that your identity is rooted in God and nothing else. Your identity as a follower of God is that you're a child of God. There is nothing more important in your life than that. You are a child of God. That's the most important thing about you. It is not in what you love. It's not in how you sin. It's not in your sexuality. It's not in your status. It's in nothing. You are made in the image of God, and if you follow him, you're a child of God. If you don't follow him, you're a child of wrath, which means you're going to deserve wrath. And that's not the place you want to be. The most important thing about you is if you are a child of God or not. Parents, if I can stress this, and this is the youth pastor coming through, the most important thing about your kid is that they're a child of God. They're a good athlete. They're a good student. Cool. Are they, good, are they a child of God? That's the most important. Parents, spouses, I'm glad you're a mother. I'm glad you're a father. The most important thing about you is that you're a child of God. If you rest your identity in anything but that, I promise you're going to be disappointed. And you're going to be off purpose, which leads to the next. When he doubts us, doubt the character of God, or excuse me, when he leads us to doubt our identity, we end up losing our purpose. Your purpose is in your identity as a child of God. That's where you find your very purpose. It's not changed since Genesis 1, 27, that we are supposed to spread the image of God throughout all of creation. That's where we find our hope. That's where we find our evangelism. 
that we want this world to look more like Christ and less like ourselves. We were created to bear his image and make much of God. If we make much of ourselves, all we find is a futile, vain life with no meaning. And we're supposed to tell this world how amazing God is, not how amazing we are. That's our purpose. But listen, there's still deception in this area. I'm going to be very clear. God does not need you. He desires you. It's a big difference. God desires you to help make much of himself and spread his image. He does not need you to do it. He could snap his fingers and be done right now. Some days I wish that would happen. But when we feel like we are necessary for God, I promise you, you will only show up when it's convenient for you. You will only show up when it's your time to serve. And you're telling God, yeah, you need me more than you need you. And how quickly we've filled, filled our minds with lies. Listen, I love what Paul says, do not think so highly of yourself. Don't think so highly of yourself. God delights when you serve, so serve knowing that when you serve, you're delighting the Father. And in that delight, I promise you, you can find delight in your own soul. The fourth tactic that Satan used was to lead you to doubt the character of God, to which we respond by know that God is God and you're not. My mom said this to me as a little child. Scott, I'm so glad you're not God. You all should be too. I'm just saying. Things would have changed out very differently. Thanks, Patsy. <laughs> what I mean by that is know that God is God and you're not, which means that God is not withholding anything from you. He's not withholding grace. He's not withholding mercy. He's not withholding anything. He's given you everything you need for a life of godliness and holiness. He has given us every good source of satisfaction and pleasure, all defined in his perfect and good and pleasing will, defined by his word. Any attempt to say that his character is not good is an assault on his character. And you're saying, God, I think I could do a little bit better. Really? Really? When you say to yourself, God, this is how I feel feel. This is what I want. This is my experience. This is what I want you to give me. You're telling God that he does not know what he's doing, which is an assault on his character and on his goodness and all of his attributes. And all you do when you do that is you are living a life of wrath and judgment that's being poured out upon yourself. And you're so deceived. God is God and we are not. And how that changes everything everything. Because so often, I was in a conversation recently, we discussed this as a small group. So quickly, we approach scripture based purely out of experience. It's the wrong avenue. John Wesley once uh, coined the, the, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. You start with the Bible. You start with tradition. You go to reason. Then you go to experience. Mankind's flipped that around. We're like, hey, no, 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 no. We're going to start with experience. What is, what is it? How do I feel? How do I, how do I think? And then we go to reason. That doesn't make sense because it doesn't make sense over here. It doesn't make sense over here. Then we go to tradition. Wow, that tradition is kind of stupid. And then we go to Bible and we're like, well, here we go. I'll take that out, take that out, take that out, take that out, take that out. I only have one page left and I just have a bunch of footnotes. Like what in the world? Listen, you have no authority. We just sang about authority a second ago. You have no authority to inform Scripture and demand that it conforms to your desires and your pleasure. 
Scripture alone has the authority to transform our souls and our minds and our hearts and then inform the way we see everything, the way we inform the way we treat our spouse, the way we raise our kids. It's all rooted in God's word. You look at all the problems we have in our world today, it's because they do the opposite. A scripture, I don't like black people. So here, inform this. Here's how I'm going to transform scripture to support my racism. You see how that's problematic? Here's how I'm going to define marriage. That's how I define marriage. This is how I'm lustful, but I think this is good and this is pleasurable. I see it. God, you're withholding your goodness and character. So therefore, transform your scripture to be like this. Over and over and over again. We are going the wrong way. It always starts with God's word. That's the foundation. That's the very same word that spoke the world into existence. How dare we say it's wrong? That very word spoken all to existence is now breathing alive in us, informing us, conforming us to his image. The last thing. He's trying to lead us to believe that you can cover your shame. It's simple. Know that only the blood of Christ can remove the guilty stain of sin and shame. Only the blood of Christ can remove what you've screwed up, what I've screwed up. Don't blame Adam and Eve. You would have done it too. You cannot do it. No amount of good works. Listen to that. No amount of good works. I don't care how much you give. I'm glad you do, but I don't care how much you give. I don't care how much you serve. I don't care how much you do all these things. I don't even care how much you attend. Those things, while yes, they are good, do not remove the guilt of sin and shame. It doesn't happen. Mankind's tried over and over again. All religions are all about making ourselves good. We, as Christians, believe we can't make ourselves good. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus can do this. So then why not call upon him for deliverance? Why not call upon him for mercy? Why not call upon him for a future and hope? As we begin to wrap up, two things that must happen. Two things that must happen. The first, this has to be done in the light. Satan loves to play in the dark. In the same way he came to Jesus in a moment of weakness, he's coming to you. When you're most vulnerable, when it's in the darkest moment, and he starts speaking tender words to your, your heart and your soul. And you think to yourself, well, that's just when I'm the weakest. Excuse me, I think scripture also says in that weakness, God's most glorified. Start bringing Satan back into the light. He doesn't want to be there. Because when you bring someone into the light, you're showing it for what it really is. And he knows he's a coward. And he's lost. Bring Satan out into the light and start fighting him with God's word, with the promises of God. Listen, that came way before any lie of Satan. Fight him in the light. The second thing you need to do, you have to do this within community. I love the, go back and watch it later. I love the Battle of Kruger Park at the end. I love that scene where they take the young calf who is so naive, so innocent, so pure, and so vulnerable that got attacked. What did they, what did they do? They circled around him, brought him back into the fold, and attacked in his united front. That's true for you and me. You cannot wander this life aimlessly by yourself. You have to be in community. That's why we do small groups. That's why we encourage all the things that we do here, to come into community so we can get together and fight together, not just sit passively by, no, to fight together, to wage war against the enemy who's kicking us in the teeth regularly. How is it possible that one who's already defeated has so much victory over us? 
It doesn't make sense. Let me just start closing out with this. The darkest point in my entire life, 2013. 2013, I was a college dropout. I had no idea where I was going. I had no future in my mind. In my mind, I had no identity. In my mind, I had no hope. I had nothing. I doubted God's word. I doubted people in my life. I doubted everything. I had one friend. His name was Drew. Drew is my best friend to this day. He had the supernatural ability to know when to text me. You have those people in your life probably. You just get a text from him and everything changes. He would text me. He's like, hey, I know something's wrong with you. What's going on today? I said, Drew, I don't know what's true anymore. And he would speak truth into my life over and over and over again. Why? Because that's the bedrock of our faith. And throughout all of that, we formed this bond that is not breakable. We formed this bond in this relationship that is still going today. And it's all centered upon God and his word. And I know some of you might feel in that very same position right now. Deception has taken root in your life. You don't know who's who. You don't know what's what anymore. You can't believe lies on television. You, can't believe, you don't know what to think anymore. Facebook doesn't create any good things. It all just creates a chaotic mess. Like, I don't know what to believe anymore. So-and-so says this. So-and-so says of this over here. That guy on TikTok has a degree, so I think maybe that's, maybe that's what I should believe. No, no, no. Find people in your life who are going to speak back into your soul the very word of God. That's written upon their lives. To come back to what I said earlier, Jesus has already been victorious. And yes, you feel defeated right now. He is right there ready to clothe you, to cover your shame, to remove it, and clothe you with his righteousness. That's the greatest act of mercy this world's ever seen. If you want to pray with somebody, I encourage you to come forward and pray today. If you want to just share your life, share your mess, I'll share you my mess. Let's have a time together to pray, to bring things into the light, to confess things, and to begin to full attack against the enemy of darkness.